Welcome to The Conversation, a podcast dedicated to long-form discussions with important public figures on the issues of the day. I'm Maury Phillips, your host, and today we welcome Celeste Williams to The Conversation. Williams is a family nurse practitioner and educator who is running as the Democratic nominee for the Arkansas 3rd Congressional District seat. She has received endorsements from Moms Demand Action, the National Organization for Women, and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund, and she was among the first 20 candidates across the nation to be endorsed by the Warren Democrats, which consists of candidates endorsed by Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. I talked to Celeste Williams about COVID-19, the Supreme Court, race in America, and many more topics coming up on The Conversation. Now we welcome Celeste Williams to the conversation. Williams is running as the Democratic nominee against Republican Congressman Steve Womack for the Arkansas 3rd Congressional District seat. Welcome to the show, Ms. Williams. Thank you so much for having me. Now, please tell me about yourself and your background. I know quite a bit about your work and what you do for the community, but Mm -hmm. I'm sure that you could describe it better in your own words. Sure. So I am a family nurse practitioner. I've been a nurse for a little over 24 years now, which seems crazy. Um, I am a wife, a mother of four. I am a former foster mom, adoptive mom, and U.S. congressional candidate. I'll add to, I'm a graduate of um, Southern Nazarene University and UAMS. Now, you're running here against Steve Womack and Collegius, mm-hmm. what should Arkansas know about the platform and political views of Celeste Williams? Sure. So I, I would say that my views have been shaped by my experience of being a nurse. And so that framework comes from looking at like social determinants of health. And certainly the whole point of me even running for office is that I see so many of my patients who struggle with the cost of health care. They can't afford their prescription drugs. Oftentimes, um, they can't take off from their job to be able to come back for follow-up. And, you know, a lot of, or for their medication, they can't both afford that and to pay their rent and put food on the table. And I don't think anybody should go broke just because they have a health care need. And, and those are things that I can't write a prescription for in the exam room. And so it's really that um, desire to advocate and fight for people in my community whose voices I don't think are always heard. Now, in this election, there are many relevant issues. We talked about it right before we uh, went on air, started recording. Uh, I mean, really, there's more than three, but I, I talked to a lot of people about this here at the John Brown University campus. Uh, There are a lot of people here politically involved, and I work for the Threefold Advocate, the student newspaper here, and we talk about this a lot. Uh, But I want to ask you, and we'll also have Steve Womack on next week, and we're also going to try to get Michael Collegius on here in the near future as well. But I want to ask you all, so I'm going to go ahead and ask you as well, uh, doesn't have to be in any any particular order, but what are the three most important issues in the country right now, in your opinion? If you have more, obviously, you know, that's Mm -hmm. one thing, but go ahead. What are some pressing issues right now that need to be addressed in the United States? So I think one is that everybody that I talk to is just absolutely exhausted by the division and dysfunction that occurs in Washington. The reality is we all want many of the same things, you know, and, and once we get 
past the dysfunction, then what I hear from people most often is healthcare costs, educational opportunities, and good paying jobs. And, you know, I think before we get to those things, we obviously have to tackle the COVID pandemic. Yes, yeah, so I want to get to the COVID pandemic now. Many people are still mm-hmm. looking for answers on this. It's a global pandemic. Almost every country on earth has been affected by this in some way, yeah. shape, or form. Uh, but, you know, some countries are doing better than, better than others. Uh, in the United yeah. States, you know, I mean, we are struggling in a way to contain this. I want to Absolutely. get to our country's handling here on this in a second. But first, I want to ask, because uh, this is something, you know, a lot of people want to know. How does your experience as a nurse influence your stance on the issues relating to the pandemic, perhaps your knowledge or just how you feel uh, regarding just a lot of the action being done on this? Yeah. So um, certainly when I heard about COVID before it was front page of every paper, I was deeply concerned. And I'm one of those weird people that have worried about a pandemic for a for a long time. I worry, you know, in Northwest Arkansas, we have a lot of international travel and certainly a lot of um, people travel to and from China doing business. And, you know, I know that in Pakistan, there is wild polio. And so that has often been one of my worries that someone's going to bring that back Um, and, and not necessarily a new virus, but this is a new virus. And so I was very concerned that this was going to be a big deal. And I didn't trust China's data that they were putting out on it. And I worried that it was much more um, deadly than what they were sort of letting on at first. And so, you know, our response testing was delayed, which put us behind. Um, we still don't have adequate testing to get ahead of the virus and um, address the pandemic, which then causes continued economic pain for so many people. Um, and it's been a total disruptor for everyone's lives. And, you know, states have really been left to fend for themselves. You know, there's still not a federal plan to address the virus. And I liken that to, you know, as though we have been attacked by a foreign entity and the, the federal government just said, okay, state, you get your own weapons and you fight this battle and everybody's on their own. You, it's, you got it. And that, that has not worked well at all. And so, you know, the United States of America has unbelievable resources. We have unparalleled manufacturing capabilities, biotech um, expertise. We have experts that have, you know, historically been housed in the CDC and the NIH. And we've really seen that expertise undermined by the federal government over and over again, which this then puts us behind the eight ball and we're not following basic public health principles and you know that has dire consequences for people who live here and their families I mean how many people are enjoying doing virtual school 
or or worrying about their kids being in-person school right now. It's just been so disruptive and people losing their jobs and we have record unemployment rate and still we're not taking care of this virus appropriately. Yeah, and I mean, going in, go back to, you know, January, 2020, February, like we're seeing how this was going through China, going through Italy. I myself, yeah. you know, I thought that, well, the United States, we're, of all the countries, including in the Western world, we're the most equipped to handle this. And I, yeah, I think most we people were. thought this, yes. So seeing how, you know, months and months later, I mean, the entire world was still doing, dealing with this, but seeing how it's still, you know, we're wearing masks, you know, I got mine right here, JBU, yeah. rocking the uh, golden blue. But, yeah, so, I mean, seeing how this is still an issue, I'm sure it's frustrating and people want to return to normal and we're now experiencing fatigue. That's what a lot of experts are talking about. And so now, I mean, drawing that to how the country's handled it, I mean, and the state as well, because I do want to talk about the state of Arkansas. We're one of the Mm -hmm. few that did not have a stay-at-home order. Um, Governor Mm -hmm. Asa Hutchinson, he's been met with some mixed reception. I've seen some people praise him, some people not so much. But, I mean, just looking at all of that, there's a lot to tackle there, but... Just what are your thoughts on the country's response some more and also the states? I also want to touch on that because we did, again, have a very unique approach. Only one of yeah. the few states not do a stay-at-home order. Yes, and I think we can continue to go about our lives. We are just, We need to ask people to do it in a safer way. And certainly I think that in times of crisis, historically, this country has come together. And it didn't take, you know, a, a lot of leadership ability to say, this is our patriotic duty to all come together to defeat this virus and to model appropriate behavior, such as just the basic stuff, wear a mask, wash your hands, watch your distance, um, and to caution people about the virus and to take it seriously. And, and that didn't and still isn't happening. And, you know, I will absolutely, as a nurse, acknowledge not everybody is going to be deathly ill with this virus. Some people are going to be just fine, but it is that unpredictability of who is going to be harmed. And we know that the risk is much greater for our seniors and those who are immunocompromised. And I think that, that those people have value and that we need, you know, I believe that I was called to love my neighbor. And so asking someone to put a mask on their face to protect their neighbors isn't a big ask in my opinion. And, and that, you know, again, that is what public health experts are recommending. And that message has been undermined by the Trump administration. You know, and and you may not be sick, but maybe you get in a car accident and you need care at the hospital, but the hospital is overrun with COVID patients and you have to sit in the ER for eight to 12 hours or longer. And that delay, it makes it harder for everybody else to get the care that they need. And, And, you know, quite honestly, Nurses and physicians and just about every single person that's working in healthcare right now, we are exhausted. We are absolutely exhausted. We are being asked to do more with fewer resources than we've ever been asked to do before. 
And, you know, I believe that we have the, some of the most dedicated, brilliant, hardworking healthcare professionals in this country. But we're tired. And it is making it so hard to do our job and do it well. And people don't get into healthcare because they want to make a million dollars. They get into healthcare because they care about people and they want to make a difference. And, and people right now are not feeling like they're able to do that because they're so overrun with COVID. Yeah. And I mean, me personally, I'm 20 years old. So, you know, looking through all the data and knowing mm-hmm. that COVID, it, it's really not as much of a health threat to somebody like myself. Uh, I mean, and going through that, knowing that I know a lot of people also my age, they have to really, it's just kind of hard to deal with the fact that, you know, this isn't a big threat to us exactly, but there to a lot of older people, it is. And as well, you yeah. know, if you're immunocompromised. Um, so yeah, that's a lot to well, unpack there. And it's, yeah. And there was someone who was like in their young, in early twenties, who was a very athletic person that died recently. And so, you know, again, it's that unpredictability that, that, that probably you would be fine. But there is a possibility that you won't. Yeah, and it's just, it's again, it's a very unpredictable virus. We don't know, you know, what happens with it. Some people, they have symptoms for months. They lose their sense of taste, sense of smell, uh, you name it. They lose it for months. And some people, it's just a ticklish throat or something you know they just have a tickle in their yeah. throat or they don't even have it they're asymptomatic so it's, it's something that we haven't seen something like this in a very long time and i mean we had right. gone through different things you know different threats ebola zika about 10 years ago h1n1 uh, yeah covid19 though has been like the nightmare level threat that the world really just hasn't contained but the united states i feel like you know wh- what are we doing to contain it i mean I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of people are putting their best foot forward on this, but we need to, I think, I mean, we just haven't defeated the pandemic yet. And I think a lot of people thought yeah. by June we would have defeated the pandemic, but now it's October, almost November, and it's still yeah. case loads are going up, hospitalizations still going up in some places. So what needs to be done to defeat the pandemic, and do you believe that normalcy and an end to COVID-19 in America is possible under the Trump administration? Oh, there's a lot to answer in that question. Um, so I'll start with what do we need to do? And it's the same thing we've needed to do all along. Testing, tracing, isolating. And so I look at where we are with unemployment right now, and I see that as an opportunity. Let's put some of the people who are unemployed to work doing contact tracing. It's, you know, you don't have to have an advanced degree to be able to make phone calls and figure out who somebody came into contact with. So I view that as an opportunity to employ people, put them back to work. Um, and, and also let's again, defeat this common enemy, which is the COVID virus. Um, then we also need to, um, ramp up our um, manufacturing of, like swabs and reagents um, for doing the testing, all of those pieces to being able to do um, greater numbers of tests. And then we need to make sure that, um, I'm sorry, my dog is (laughs) talking in the room, which is distracting me. Um, And then we need to make sure that um, testing, tracing, isolating, and then from there, our way out is getting a vaccine. And so we need to increase manufacturing capabilities of that. I mean, we have a lot of 
people in this country, obviously. And we, beyond just manufacturing the vaccine, we have to have a plan to be able to give it to the general public. And as we're doing that, we need to address vaccine hesitancy. You know, we don't have really high rates of vaccination in this country. And we need to make sure that people see that the vaccine is safe and effective. And as soon as experts have deemed it so, you know, I'm going to be in line to get it because I want out of this pandemic. I mean, we want back to normal. And and really, at the beginning, you know, I watched a panel discussion of epidemiologists, and they said 18 to 24 months of this. And so, you know, that's probably still our reality. We're probably at least a year away from normal. And, and also, I have to say, you know, normal is what got us here. So I think we need to look at this disaster and reimagine what we want for the future. You know, how do we better meet um, threats of pandemics and basic health care needs? How do we catch our children up um, because they're getting behind right now um, for school? How do we address all the um, primarily it's been disproportionately women who are out of work now? That's a huge economic impact to working families. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that we need to look at and and look for a few and, and work to create the future we want. Yeah. And now as we look at the presidential election, how important do you think that is in determining when America returns to normal? Do you think that? Whoever's in the White House really kind of helps in determining that? I, I do, because I think it is a question of leadership. And, and we haven't seen that in this administration. And I think that whoever, you know, we have to have someone who will put country ahead of party. Like, when did a virus become such a political issue? You know, I, I don't understand how we have gotten to the point that we've divided ourselves against pro-mask and anti-mask groups. Like, I just love my country. I love my neighbors. And I want to protect my neighbors. And I want to make sure that that we create an opportunity to get out of this. So, like, let's all do our part so that we can reduce the economic harm and so that we can continue to have life, liberty, and freedom. And, and wear masks, wash your hands, watch your distance. Let's do that. Yeah, and about a month ago I had political commentator David French on the show, and we were talking about masks, and we are talking about really kind of the culture war that's going through on that. Yes. And, and he says, you know, it really just shows just how polarized we are as a country. Uh, you have some people wearing masks uh, because their political opponents, you know, well, I take that back. You have some people that aren't wearing masks because some of their political opponents are and, you know, it's just it's so divided. And it's not just that uh, there's a lot of polarization, again, on the vaccines. Uh, you have a lot of, yeah. again, the anti-vax kind of movement in the United States is, is pretty big, uh, at least more so than I think what most would want it to be. And I assume you know, then you go to things like stimulus, a lot of debates on that, uh, just a lot of things. And what what should be open? There's been a lot of debate on sports. Uh, there's been a lot of debate like on college football. Uh, NFL, things like that. So just everything, every single thing relating to the pandemic, it seems, with maybe a couple of exceptions, uh, it's, it's been turned into this left or right kind of divisive issue. I mean, how do we split yeah. that? How do we go through all that polarization? 
I think that it really does come back to leadership. And, and let's also acknowledge that what we are living through isn't normal. And it is incredibly hard. And people are suffering. And, you know, it's not their fault that they're going through this. It, it is a virus. It is a new virus. It is highly contagious. And it is disrupting our lives. And so, you know, I'm not sure why even passing the stimulus is that contentious. Like, people are hurting. They've lost their jobs. There's not another job to, to go to. So let's help keep people in their homes and help them put food on the table. Like, this will become even worse if we pretend that it's just going to magically go away on its own. It's not. It absolutely isn't. And, you know, it's hard on our kids, too. You know, I don't, my kids are struggling, you know, and in my practice, I'm seeing a lot of people who are really suffering through the mental health consequences of the isolation of this. And, and I think that it is imperative that our leaders step forward and lead us out of this. Yes. Now let's shift gears now to another big issue in the country at the moment. We talked a lot about COVID-19 uh, now let's go to the Supreme Court because I know that's definitely a big issue. Yeah, uh, there's a chance that you know by this time and next week or potentially not long after. I mean, the Senate Republicans are really trying to move forward to get Amy Coney Barrett onto the Supreme Court. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away last month, so Amy Coney Barrett is the one they're proposing to put in there uh, to take her seat. What are your thoughts on this effort and and their attempts to really fast track this before the election or at least before the inauguration? Yeah, I, I think that the, first, I just want to acknowledge that the Supreme Court issue has also been deeply politicized. And so I think that when you look, ask Democrats what they're concerned about right now, it, it's the hypocrisy of Merrick Garland being denied a Senate, um, a chance to be voted on. And, and the precedent was set at that time that we weren't going to hear that argument in an election year. And then you have sort of that unfairness um, that leaves a really bitter taste in, in people's mouths. And, you know, I think that really it's become so important because the legislature has failed to do its job. You know, absolutely the president has a constitutional right to make an appointment. But these issues that are coming, that are like the Affordable Care Act is going to be heard before the Supreme Court again. And, and these issues are so important because the legislature hasn't gone back and fixed the problems that people care about. And you know, that is why it becomes so politicized. And the answer to every problem isn't for the president to write an executive order for it, that the next president is going to come along and undo. And so I think when we think about how do we turn the temperature down on this, it is incredibly important that we have a functioning government. And, you know, I think the average citizen feels very frustrated that the things that they care about, the things that impact their lives aren't being 
addressed by Congress. And, you know, when I think about like, you know, even with the CARES Act, when that was passed, I think that was an incredibly important piece of legislation, but it needs to be done again. And so we, it's the sense that Congress is oftentimes willing to pass a bill that will really help the incredibly wealthy or large multinational corporations. But it, when it comes to helping the everyday American who just wants to put food on their table and make sure their kids get a good education and their kids have opportunities for good paying jobs, there's, there's inaction. And I think that's incredibly frustrating. And so I think, you know, with this election coming up, it's a chance for everybody's voice to be heard. And I think people are voting in droves and they have the vote. The electorate has something to say and we're all just anxiously waiting to hear what they're saying. Now, sticking with the Supreme Court, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion mm-hmm. now because it is looking like Amy Coney Barrett will get confirmed potentially next week, but at least before the election. Uh, so there's been talk about what the Democrats might do to counter this effort if they win the White House and the Senate majority. Mm-hmm. And both, you know, the White House, based off the polling, uh, is looking somewhat likely, and the Senate majority is a little less likely, but still very much a possibility. A lot of key races, like in Maine, Arizona, uh, Iowa, and South Carolina, actually. So one major possibility if they win the Senate majority and the White House is that they could do what they're calling, you know, court packing, which would expand the mm-hmm. Supreme Court and minimize the impact of an Amy Coney Barrett confirmation. Uh, Would you support this measure of what they call court packing? So I will just preface, my bias is always to maintain the system as it is. I, I don't necessarily think that's the solution. I also think that we don't know how Amy Coney Barrett is going to vote on things. And so... You know, I am much more of the mind to wait and see, you know, if if the Supreme Court does straight strike down the protections the Affordable Care Act brought, then maybe I would be a little more open to having that conversation. But what I think is much more important is that our legislature actually pass legislation that addresses some of these issues instead of leaving these decisions up to the Supreme Court. That That is an abdication of their job. And I think that we have to have a functional Congress instead of just sitting back and letting the courts decide everything. So your thoughts on it more so, you know, maybe the discussion on court packing can be had later in the future, but really the pressure shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. It should be more like legislatively. Yeah, I absolutely, yeah, I, I don't, and even like, like I said, big sweeping change like that of changing the structure of our government, I'm always very hesitant to be supportive of that. Yes, and it would be a huge move indeed. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, moving forward on some other issues here, I want to touch on this as well. There's been a renewed emphasis over the last six or seven months on confronting issues of race in the country, such as police mm-hmm. brutality, uh, racism in general. I mean, it's one of the most difficult issues we have to confront on a societal level. A lot of the conversations yeah. on it are very uncomfortable, uh, but it is important to confront and build something that's better for the future. I mean, but how do we fix that? Uh, is there is there a legislative fix? Is there a societal remedy or a moral solution in your mind? Well, 
I think it's all of the above on that. You know, I think we are uncomfortable as a country reviewing our history. We all want to just kind of move on. And I think that our, our history informs our present. And so I think that this is a conversation we've need to, needed to have as a country. And, you know, our values as Americans and looking at our Constitution and our Declaration of Independence, we say that we believe all, all which actually says all men are created equally. I would quibble with that and say all people are created equally. And, you know, I think that it is impossible to legislate away an individual's racism or an individual's you know, you can't legislate an individual's thoughts. Um, but what you can do is help create a structure and a system of equality so that we look at structures in our society and make sure that they create equal opportunities for everyone. And so, you know, I bring that back to thinking about from a healthcare framework social determinants of health, making sure that every person in every zip code has the same opportunity for a healthy life. And that sounds funny, but the things that predict a healthy life are a good paying job, a safe neighborhood, opportunities for educational attainment, um, you know, making sure you have a job that you can meet all your basic needs and clean water and good transportation and all of those things. And if we really work as a society to make sure everybody has equal opportunity wherever they're from, where whatever their zip code, then we're actually helping to improve equality everywhere. And and absolutely people of color face disproportionate um violence and incarceration and and all of those kind of things. But those same issues overlap with people who live in rural places and having inaccessibility to health care. And, you know, I think that we have to, you know, take the temperature down and, and like, let's just talk about what do we need to create an equitable, strong economy and society. And I think when you create opportunities for all individuals, then you strengthen families. Yeah, now I want to specifically touch on the issue of police brutality. I watched your interview on yeah. Capitol View the other night, and you briefly also got a chance to touch on this. And, I mean, every reasonable person out there knows that the vast majority of police officers, they're great folks, they do a lot for the community. Yeah. That's not really the issue. It's more so the, the bad apples who have committed violent acts against people that they're really sworn to protect and serve. How do we approach this issue and what legislation would you support to defeat police brutality? Yeah. So I want to first acknowledge that a lot of the problems that we face as a society, we tend to dump on law enforcement and schools. And, you know, when I watched that video of George Floyd in his final moments crying out for his mother, I mean, I think that was a huge rallying cry for everyone who's ever been called mom. And I don't 
want my child or anyone's child to ever go through that. And so that's an obvious no-brainer. Let's, let's not ever um, allow chokeholds. You cannot kneel on someone's neck until they die. Like, these are basic human dignity things that we need to address. And then I think when you look at, like, the case of Breonna Taylor, that's an example where she and her boyfriend both have the legal right to bear arms and to use deadly force if someone breaks into their home and they feel threatened. Well, our police officers also have a legal right to use weapons and use deadly force when they are being threatened. And I think that it is the responsibility of our legislators to look at where there are areas of conflict in the law and remove that conflict. So, you know, let's stop doing no-knock warrants unless there's an imminent danger of someone's safety in that home. And I think that that we the point of the government, in my opinion, is to help create equality. And so when you have a system of inequality, that is a point where we need intervention to right that injustice. So, again, we are having this dialogue just as a country right now on how do we combat mm-hmm. this. And we've seen some cities around the country and some politicians talk openly about something like defunding the police. And even in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. we've seen there have been talked to, you know, completely just restructure how the city handles policing in a way that just simply you know, it goes beyond defunding the police. Uh, would you support any measure defunding the police, or do you believe that other reforms need to be considered first? What I think we need to do is look at what are we asking of our police officers. And when I talk to law enforcement officers in my community, they have talked about how oftentimes they are responding to situations that are actually mental health crises. And so I think, well, let's address that. Let's make sure that we have access to mental health care, that we have community mental health care services available, and that we do all that we can to increase the amount of mental health professionals that we have access to to make it easier for people to get the care that they need. Yeah, and now I want to ask this because I know we have a lot of JBU students that listen to this, a lot of people in you know the 18 to 22, 23 range. Uh, so I want to ask, you know, how can we, the youth of America, you know, do something to bring racial equality and unity uh, to a country right now that just desperately needs it? So I'm going to just start with a non-political answer and just say, to, to reach out and find someone who doesn't look like you and get to know them and to hear their story and to, cha- and to challenge your own perspective that you hold. And, and I think also, you know, let's as a society make an effort to care for the least among us, those who are marginalized those who live in poverty and what can we as individuals do to improve their lives? And then I think I would certainly encourage young people to get 
active and get involved in a cause in your community that helps um, people who are marginalized. Um, and maybe, you know, I think some of us, some in our society hold their nose about politics, but the reality is, is that politics is deeply personal and it does affect so many aspects of our lives. And so, you know, talk to all of the people that are running for office in your area and, you know, go to their website, learn more about them, figure out where they stand on the issues that you care about and maybe get involved in a campaign. And, and, you know, that's not the answer for everybody, but, but you as an individual can find a way to get involved and, and really make a difference. Yeah. Now I know we're running a little bit low on time, so I want to, get to this here. I mean, what are your thoughts now? Because we're looking at the presidential election and we got a lot of also key mm-hmm. races in the Senate. The majority is up for grabs. A lot of just key races around the country, as I said, you know, in Maine, South Carolina, Iowa, Arizona. Uh, so what are your thoughts on just this really test that we're going to be having here uh, over the course of the fall? Just of these two major political parties, we're really seeing right now where America stands on them, uh, both on the Republicans and the Democrats. What do you think about that? And then as it relates to, you know, the presidential race, I mean, how does Joe Biden compare to President Donald Trump in terms of his platform and leadership? We've spoken a lot on Trump's leadership, uh, but how does Biden stack up in comparison? So when I think about where we are as a nation, I think that a lot of people are suffering right now. And when I think about who of these men is able to have empathy, who understands suffering, I think that that person is Joe Biden. I think that we are all yearning for calm and decency and someone who will Stop hitting us against one another over and over again. I think that we need a president who is bigger than his party. And we need someone who is willing to lead America and not just one party. Because we are all Americans. And we all want predominantly the same thing. And I think that is incredibly important for us to have right now. And once we get past just the bitter partisan divide, then let's, let's start electing people whose motivation is serving the people of their district, not staying in power, not padding the pockets of their campaign and taking massive uh, campaign contributions from special interest groups and corporate PACs. Because when we look at why is it that nothing gets done in Washington? You know, everybody agrees that every person is going to need health care at some point. But nothing ever gets done. And Why is that? Well, if you look at our Congress members, a whole lot of them, and not just Republicans, a whole lot of them 
are taking corporate PAC money from pharmaceutical industries and other special interest groups within healthcare. And I think that is wrong. I think I think we need to have people who are beholden to the people in their district and not just beholden to their co- corporate donors. Yes, yeah, so and now- I would like to just add I have not taken any corporate PAC money. <laughs> You have your own race against Congressman Steve Walmack and Libertarian yeah. Michael Collegius. Why should, when we go to vote, why should we consider you? Because I'm not in this to just get power for the sake of power. I am running for Congress because I want to make sure that my patients that I love and I care about get the health care that they need. I want to make sure that not just my children, but everyone's children have educational and economic opportunities in their future. And, you know, nobody should go broke just because they get sick. We have to have a world-class education system, and that starts with pre-K and goes through K through 12. And, And then we have to have good opportunities for future employment, and that's vocational training and college education, and we have to restore the dignity of work by ensuring every worker in America is paid a fair wage and that we protect Medicare and Social Security. And Congressman Womack has proposed a budget that cuts Medicare and Social Security, and I think that's wrong. I think a budget is a moral document that shows what you view as important and what you care about. And I care about the people in my community. And that's a good way to end it off. That is Celeste Williams. Where can we find you on social media? Uh, What's your campaign website? Anything there that we can find you on? Yeah. So I am on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you type in Celeste Williams, you will find me. Um, My website is Celeste Williams for arkansas.com we have lots of policy platform positions if you have curiosity about an issue we haven't talked about today and certainly there's still time to sign up to volunteer and help the campaign and you know this is important so if if you care about democracy and i think most of us as americans do get involved Yes, and that is Celeste Williams. You will see her name on the ballot if you live in the state of Arkansas. She's running as the Democratic nominee for Congress in the 3rd Congressional District against Steve Womack and Michael Collegius. Thanks for your time, Ms. Williams. And that will do it for the conversation. Special thanks to the JBU Common Department, the Threefold Advocate, and Golden Eagle Productions for all of the help and support in making this possible. On next week's episode, I will be talking to a Republican opponent, Congressman Steve Womack. Should be another great conversation, and I'll catch you all then. I hope you all enjoyed. This has been The Conversation. I'm Ori Phillips. The views, comments, or opinions expressed in this podcast are those of their respective contributors alone. Views, comments, or opinions expressed do not necessarily represent the views of John Brown University or any employees thereof. John Brown University is not responsible for any errors, omissions, or accuracy of the content and disclaims any and all liability for the content of this podcast and comments written by any contributors, viewers, or listeners.